I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. In today's program, we take a look at some of the opportunities and advantages of conducting covered cropping trials in a strip-till system. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get alerts when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Jack Boyer is no stranger to experimentation. As a retired ag engineer, the Rhinebeck, Iowa farmer spent more than three decades proactively problem-solving equipment issues. For the last decade plus, he's applied his trial and error methods to cover crops, and today utilizes cover crops on 100% of his corn, seed corn, and soybean operation. But Boyer acknowledges a successful marriage of strip-till and cover crops takes work and a willingness to learn from mistakes while also celebrating the successes. As Boyer explains, in corn, we'll go in with a burn-down application plus 30 units of nitrogen per acre with UAN before planting. But we'll no-till soybeans right into the cereal rye that is almost four feet high, then come back in with a burn-down within five days. They find that the soybeans are not limited by the rye, but it certainly helps control the weeds. In part one of today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Boyer details his experience integrating cover cropping practices into his operation to include examples of nutrient application savings, water infiltration benefits, and interseeding trials. Maybe as a way of a little bit of an introduction, tell you a little bit about my farm. And, and, and by today's standards, I'm a real small farmer. Uh, between what my wife and I own, rent, and custom farm, we're still less than a thousand acres. And, but it's pretty much a one-man operation, so that's, a, that's plenty for one person. I shouldn't say one person. My wife does help some and helps quite a bit in trans- getting me around and everything, so that's quite appreciated as well. But anyway, raise... As, as Jack had already indicated, raise commercial corn, seed corn, soybeans, and in the last three years I've added some cereal rye to the, to the uh, cropping plans in order to grow my own cover crop seed. I, do, in, I also do custom cover crop seeding, and so to have seed available to do some of that as well. My, our farm is also a century farm. The story I love to tell about that is my, grand, my wife's grandfather settled a farm her dad was born in the house that we now live in. He lived for 94 years having never left the home and died in the home. So he left us quite a legacy that uh, I'll never fulfill because it's not going to be there. But anyway, and his motto was is he wanted that ground and that farm to be left in better shape than it was when he received it. But my wife and I do share that philosophy. So we want to try to keep, keep improving the ground, improving the land. And these are some of the some of the things that I'm trying to learn to see how I might be able to do that. Some of the things that I'm going to share with you, 
like Jack had already said, you may disagree. These are things that I've found that have worked for me or not worked as the case may be. But your results may be different. You've got different climates. You've got different management. Your goals may be different. And, and uh, when you're working with cover crops or even strip till, that's one of the very important things as to what is your goal. And because how you're going to treat the cover crops and some of those things is really dependent on what you're trying to accomplish with it. So I'll talk a little bit about soil health and, and, and what my understanding of soil health is, trying to get it more simplified diagram that I thought really kind of helped bring it home for me. Talk a little bit about why cover crops. And then I'll share with you some of the research data I've done over the last four or five years. And, and for those that glaze over when you hear data, I'm sorry. Okay, so soil health. You know, for the last 50 years, we spent a lot of time worrying about the physical aspects of the soil. You know, do we get the aggregate size? Do we get it smoothed out? Working in those kinds of things, and been a lot of effort put in that. And, and the chemical side. You know, we've added commercial fertilizers to be sure that our, our uh, resource, nutrients are, are available there. But over the last 50 years, we've not paid much attention to the biological aspects. And, and with this cover crop, movement, if you want to call it that, or the re-interest in cover crops. The biological aspect of it is one of the main pieces of it, but I call it, it's back to the future. Because my fathers, grandfathers, they had a similar approach. They had pasture, they had row crops, they had hay, you know, and, and, and they kind of rotated those. They had some green manure crops. They did it a little differently, but many of the same, and they put manure out there, and many of the same principles applied. But the diagram, where all of those intersect and work together, that's where you get soil health. And, and like I say, this is not this diagram is not original with me, but it kind of helped me understand it, and I, I appreciated that. You know, and the purpose of soil health is you know sustain the biological productivity. It it really helps with the environmental quality and and uh, working through that, promote plant, animal, and human health. And so then we can move into why cover crops. Probably all of you have seen a farm that looks like this. Now maybe it wasn't your farm, but it's probably your neighbor's farm or whatever. But anyway, you know, you see those ruts coming down through the field, that, that's, that's a bad deal. Because with those, that dirt that's moving, likely there's some phosphorus moving, and you may have lost some nitrogen either through leaching or, or other means. And so the way I look at that, that's money. That's like having a hole in your money bag and you're just dribbling out there and it's just washing down to your neighbors or wherever else. And, and so I paid for that nutrient. I'd like for it to stay on the field. So to me, that's one of the, my motivations for cover crops. I participated with Iowa State on a uh, capstone. The seniors at the, uh, in the ag engineering department or ag tech part, department anyway, have a project every year and they put a team of students together and, and a friend of mine gives them a project and I was a consultant on that. But anyway, we had a, gave them some parcel of land they did the topography and looked at it in different ways and, and what is there. And in that, their, their analysis of it estimated there was about 2.4 tons of uh, soil loss. In Iowa, at least, I think T is five tons. It's supposed to be an acceptable amount. So this is very small in that regard. But in any case, what might happen if we just added cover crops? He was, he was conventional. He'd been doing it conventional all along. So... What if we added cover crops to it? What effect might that have? And so these were all analytical studies, but in doing that, and you know, it, it cut the amount of soil loss by a little over half. 
didn't change anything else, had the same waterways. You know, in, in the spring, he went back to his conventional tillage, but just in that blank time, he had cover crops on the ground, and, and through the snow melt and such, it helped hold the soil. So they took another look, come back to that same situation, comparing it against what he had been doing all along, and we added no-till with the cover crops. Still had his waterways as before, but he, he did no-till instead of conventional till. That took nearly all of the erosion away. Like I say, these, these were not highly sloping soils, so you know, normally you wouldn't think they'd be a whole lot, but these are some things that at least, maybe it wouldn't be exactly, but they're possible. U.S.-wide, the average is about seven, seven and a half tons of soil loss per year. And the data he had suggested that's $40 an acre in nutrients that, are, that get away. And looking at U.S. In a, as a total cost, you know, it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $27 billion with a B. So that there's lots of dollars that, that potentially could be worldwide $400 billion. So there's lots of opportunity there if we can learn how to get this to work in our system. We'll get back to our discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. And I also wanted to remind you about the new series featured monthly on our podcast, Tech Tips, with Dr. Ray Acevedo. We're the former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture, shares insights and advice on some of the latest precision tools and how to best implement them on your operation. You can listen to past technology tips and also find accompanying articles at striptillfarmer.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Jack Boyer on his three primary goals of controlling erosion improving organic matter and nutrient cycling with cover cropping in strip-till. When you think about that again, what are your goals? And because I'm in a soybean seed corn rotation and the home farm that's a century farm has got 75 years of history of growing seed corn. And when you have a seed corn soybean rotation, you're not putting much back in that soil. And so we've seen the organic matter deteriorate in that soil. And my father-in-law believed that every six or seven years, he'd pull out of the seed corn rotation, grow commercial corn for a few years, just to slow down the rate of de degradation. And so I thought, hey, if I could do something like cover crops where I wouldn't have to pull out of that seed corn rotation, that also can help. There's some other tools that are available to kind of help you with that uh, selection of those cover crops. Uh, this is one that's by the USDA, and they list all these crops. They're cereal rye. It'll bring up a sheet like this. And, it, and for each one of those crops, you get a little data sheet on it. And so it kind of gives you some of the details of what might be available and uh, what are its purposes, what are its advantages, what are its disadvantages to help contribute to those. And so that's, that's a useful tool. Another thing to think about is, is uh, <clears throat> this is an issue that I've had with the NRCS and, and working with them to try to make some changes. Most of their recommendations are based on pounds of seed per acre. A pound is not a pound is not a pound because I took VNS rye versus Elbon cereal rye, counted out the seeds, and you see there at the bottom the, the equivalent of 56 pounds of VNS you get the same number of seeds, 
with like 35 pounds, 36 pounds of Elbon. So they need to move to seeds per acre, just like you do for corn or whatever else, and not pounds per acre. Working with the, the state NRCS office and trying to get that changed and, and uh, so that we look at that. Certainly if we could go to seeds per acre, you know, there's some tremendous cost reduction and, and I, I, I've got experience with 35 pounds of Elbon, you've got equal to or better cover crop coverage as you would with a VNS. So it's, it's, that's an opportunity. In my cereal rye growth, I, I kind of decided to try that because with, with seed corn, you have to isolate away, isolate away from commercial corn. So I uh, had a, a place that I was going to have to isolate anyway, and I, and I had an excellent stand of cereal rye on that, on that isolation point just from a cover crop. So I decided to let it go. And, and raise it and harvest it for rye seed. And so looking at that analysis, at, for this particular year, that was in 2016, you know, the, the cereal rye that I had been buying for cover crop was costing me about $12 a bushel. And so I go through the economics. Raising that rye seed was way more economical, had a much higher ROI than if I had to put soybeans like I normally do on those isolation strips. The other advantage is, is that some of these smaller isolation strips, they wind up being soybeans on soybeans on soybeans on soybeans, and you wind up with problems with those weeds and diseases and stuff. So this breaks that cycle as well. So there were some other things. But it comes, it comes with a caution. The rye market is pretty limited. The majority of the rye today is used for cover crop. If you get some real high quality rye, you can sell some into the food grade market or the whiskey market, but that's a pretty limited. So you, you, you have to be careful how much of it you grow or you'll saturate the market and you, there you've got a bunch of rye that you can be fed, but it's not nearly as palatable as I understand as some of the corn or wheat or some of the other protein products. So now I'll move on into some of the, the other research that I've done looking at cover crops in various ways. But work, and I, I, most of my research is, is cooperated with Practical Farmers of Iowa. I've done some with the Soybean Association, I've done some with uh, Iowa State, but uh, this particular one, uh, it started in 2014. It was on a seed corn field, and so the first planting date you see there is just when they destroyed the male rows. I went in there and, and a neighbor of mine had this little tractor with a loader on it, so I rigged up something so I could kind of seed some strips in there. The second seeding, it corresponded to, with seed corn, Men, much of it, they use a defoliant on it when it's at its physiological maturity, just to shut it down. And so after that, I planted some because my fear was is that earlier, if it sprouted, the defoliant would kill it. So I had another date there. Anyway, and, and then the third one was drilled after harvest. And so just looking at what, what we get out of all of that. This is the results of, for nitrogen. This is using the Haney soil test and then the conventional nitrate nitrogen test looking at that. The first bar is where there were no cover crops, and then the second one was the early planting, third is, is the second planting, and the third one is the drill, or fourth one is the drill, rather. And this is the, the total nitrogen, both in the soil and in the plant material, as, as plant-available nitrogen. You can see in the soil, there's, there's quite a bit more nitrogen than there is in the cover crop version. And what that tells me is much of that nitrogen got moved up into the plant, into the cereal rye, 
during that growing time. And the earlier it was planted, the more it captured. Also, on the average of those three different planting dates, they had 66 pounds more nitrogen available than did the no-cover area. Using 2015 prices, yeah, 15 prices, you know, that's worth somewhere between 30 and $35 an acre if you're going into a crop the following year that can use that nitrogen that's captured in that plant material. Also looking at carbon-nitrogen ratio, you can see that in the soils that had the, car, the uh, cover crop, they had reduced the nitrogen in there, so you, you got the, the nitrogen content in the plant material above, but down in the soils, see it reduced the nitrogen, or carbon-nitrogen content, I'm sorry, increased the carbon-nitrogen content in the soils, because you had more roots and other things in there that's bringing more carbon down there. So there's that benefit as well. Uh, looking at various carbon, well, let me back up. In this, this bottom one, you know, the desired carbon-nitrogen ratio is at eight, eight to 15 or so, and, and that's really geared around decomposition and releasing those nutrients back to the soil. A lot of the data suggests that if you get a carbon-to-nitrogen ratio above 20, then that delays that return of those nutrients back to the following crop. Looking at various carbon-nitrogen ratios, that's uh, some of them, you know, the rye straw, that's after it's mature and you just got the straw, it's really, really high. And so just various crops there, you can kind of see what the different uh, carbon-nitrogen ratios would be. So this was, an, I had those strips in there and I said, well, what can I continue to learn from on those and keep, keep going? So I looked at different termination dates of those cover crops and how that might affect soybean growth. So on the left there, the first one was the, uh, the first termination and uh, that was done with round, using Roundup. And then uh, the second termination was done a day after it was planting. I happened to use Gramoxone on that. And the lower one is kind of give you an indication at the second termination, kind of how it was, you know, so high. And I got to tell you, that was my first experience planting green. It's an emotional experience the first time you try it, but it all worked out okay. So then later in June, walking or going out to check the crops, look through there, and here's these green stripes through the field. Go out there and look a little closer. You know, the one on the left's the early termination, one on the right's the late termination, the one in the middle is where there was no cover. Well, all that green wasn't soybeans. It was water hemp, mare's tail, and everything else. There was a tremendous difference in the weed pressure in there. Doing the stand counts on them, the, the soybean stand counts were all statistically equal, and so the weed pressure was much higher in that no cover area. So I went ahead and sprayed it, uh, using Cobra on those no-cover areas only. And you, know, you may say $40 an acre is crazy, spend that much money. That, that's about what it cost me at that particular time, counting both the chemical and the application. I don't do my own spraying. I hired that done. But So anyway, that, that was my cost in there. The cereal rye and allocating some money for the application, that's roughly $30 that I had in the cover crop. So the way I calculate that, that was $10 I saved by not having to put that post application because at the end of the year, these two cover crop areas were as clean or cleaner than the area that I had sprayed with Cobra. Moving on, trying to get into this earlier planting date, looked at trying to interseed into field corn, mounted this air seeder on top of my anhydrous bar, rigged it up so it'd spray it down in front of the knife, got a 
good stand on that. Think, oh man, I'm I'm on my way now. And uh, so nine days, you can kind of see the going there. Three weeks later, got a good stand, growing good. There, it's six weeks. Call the corn's getting tall, and moving on through there, and then up into August, it is graveyard dead. It, it, uh, it shaded out because that corn 12, 13 feet tall. Next year, tried it. I didn't have any commercial corn. Went to seed corn. Tried a mix in there. There was a multi mix, and you know, seed corn's much smaller. Got plenty of light. Everything survived. So I've, I've been on a mission now, trying to find out what will survive in seed or in uh, commercial corn. But that was the mix, and everything survived in that. Not a lot of biomass at the end of the year, but there's some. The other thing that I got out of that, I dug some root pits after I had those. And the black streaks in there are worm trails. There was one spot there that was a little over two foot down. There were seven worm trails in about a six or eight inch width there. So there was lots of worm activity in the soil after the, having that high diverse mix out there. And then the next spring, those, some of the radishes and stuff that was there, it was just full of worms that eaten those up. Next time, I tried applying it a little differently. We've got this old Henniker cedar that uh, moved in, or, or Lauren Steinling had moved in, but anyway, planting it, interseeding it into the corn at about V4. Uh, so mid-July, this, this interseeding happened to be cowpeas, annual ryegrass, and rapeseed. So I got a good stand. Uh, just before harvest, it is after frost, those cowpeas just melted. There wasn't much there, so the, the annual ryegrass and rape was what was left. After harvest, still got some of those. So I've got some growth in there. It survived the whole season, so that, that would encourage I found some things that'll work. Well, thank you, Jack, for sharing some insight into your cover cropping trials and your lessons learned. And again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, Topcott Agriculture, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. And a reminder that you can still register to receive our Striptill Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Jack Boyer, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Striptill Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening.